Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter number 8. And the last, last Sunday I had a slide up here that said uh, 39 beautiful, beautiful or glorious verses in this chapter. And I originally I intended to preach all of chapter 8 in one, in one whack, but you know, I decided not to because it would take too long. And so today we're going to look at verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17. Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. Let's look at verse, verse 12. English Standard Version. It, this section is called Heirs with Christ. Heirs with Christ. And I've kind of given it a different, slightly different title is that through the Spirit, we are heirs with Christ. Now, being an heir is a privileged position. To be an heir of some vast estate is something special. When I was a kid growing up, my grandpa in his bedroom, actually it was his, it was his bedroom, he had a, a gun cabinet along one wall, one of those glass gun cabinets, the kind that are designed to keep your guns visible but not safe, right? <laughs> now we have gun safes and gun vaults, but in his bedroom along one wall was a big, big gun cabinet. And there was a, there was a bolt-action rifle, and there was a, 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 a Japanese rifle in there. There was a, a 22 rifle. There was a 410 pump shotgun that had, it was engraved on the receiver. And then he had his grandpa's uh, little 22 rifle. All these guns in there. And I remember, and he had a muzzle loader and various things in there, double-barrel shotguns, bolt-action shotguns. He had tons of guns in there. And as a kid, I would go in there, and I would look through the glass and dream of the day when those would pass down to me, I would look at them longingly. These will one day be my guns. One day it's going to be mine. And so one day I asked my grandpa, I said, Paul, which one of these guns am I going to get when you die? And he said, what do you mean when I die? <laughs> I'm not going to die anytime soon. I said, well, eventually you're going to check out. You know, I just want to know which one of these is going to be mine. I was worried about it because I had a cousin named Misty. And Misty, you know, she was, the fa- she was the only granddaughter, and so she was the favorite granddaughter. And then I had a cousin named Jimmy, and Misty and Jimmy, they lived just two doors down from my grandpa, and I was, I was afraid that they were always sucking up to him, and they were going to get all the good stuff, right? And then I had a brother named Joel, then there was me, and then between the grandkids uh, and those guns was my dad, Terry, my uncle, Larry, and my other uncle, Jerry, <laughs> if they'd had a fourth son, the legend is it was going to be Harry, <laughs> and then Barry, you know, very imaginative they were. And so uh, we <laughs> Mary, thankfully no ants. <laughs> so I, I said, which one of these guns am I going to get? I wanted to get it down on the record that one of those was going to be mine. And Grandpa, he said to me, so which one do you want? And, I, and the, the sharpest gun in there was the 410 pump shotgun with engraving on the receiver. And I said, I'd like to have that one. And he said, okay. He said, when I die or you turn 13, you can have it. And I thought, well, so when I was 13 years old, guess what came to me? I got the shotgun and I killed lots of rabbits and different stuff with it. But it was, I was, I was so happy to be an heir, to know something was going to be mine that I had a share in my grandfather's estate, even though it was meager. It seemed magnificent to me at the time, but really it was just a meager gift. But I was an heir. I was in a privileged position. 
And if you are an heir in, in a family or an heir to a fortune or an heir to something like that, you know that's a privilege to be in. Not everyone is an heir. Now, my dad used to always say that when he died, he was going to be sure that I got all the bills. <laughs> to be an heir is wonderful. Now, when a person is born again, when we pass from death into life, when we come into fellowship with God through Christ, when we are born again, we enter a new relationship with God through Jesus. And this new relationship is described in several ways. Here, the apostle describes it as being an heir. We are heirs with Christ in this chapter. But there are other descriptors used to show the intimate and permanent relationship we have with God through Christ. And here's a list of these different terms used to describe those who have been born again. We are described as children of God. We are described as spouses of Christ. We are described as the brethren of Christ, slaves of Christ, the body of Christ, sheep who belong to Christ, and then sometimes we're called disciples of Christ. We belong to God. We are heirs of with Christ. Now this idea of being an heir with Christ means that whatever Christ is heir to, whatever Christ is going to receive, we too are going to receive. And we've got to keep this in mind that Christianity is not prim- we need to remember that we are not primarily in the religion of Christianity, but that we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. A lot of times people will say, "Are you a religious person?" If I asked you, "Are you a religious person?" would you say yes or no? You probably would say, yes, I do religious stuff. Some people may say no. But we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and it's from that relationship that our religion manifests itself, the way we behave. We are religious because we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I drink coffee. Anybody else drink coffee? I have a very committed relationship with coffee. We're really into each other in a big way. And so because I'm committed to coffee... Because I love coffee, that means every morning when I get up, what do I do? Make a cup of coffee. There's only, one, there's only one thing worse than bad coffee. You know what it is? No coffee. That's right. <laughs> it doesn't matter as long as, it's, uh, you know, as long as it's hot and black and present. We're happy to have it. So this relationship we have with Christ means we behave in a certain way. Religion is the behavior that comes out of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I I want you guys to think about this carefully. It could be that you are a religious person, but that you don't have a relationship with Christ. Just because you go to church every Sunday, just because you crack open the Bible every Sunday, just because you got the Christian channels programmed on your speed buttons on on your radio, if we still do that kind of thing, that doesn't make you religious. doesn't make you a Christian. It makes you religious. But do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you come to know Him as your Lord And as your Savior, do you know Him? Have you moved from, as they say when I was a kid, have you moved from head knowledge to heart knowledge? Has it become a a real vital part of your life that you know that Christ is the Son of God and that He died and rose again for your sins? Do you know that? Do you have that connection with Him? Is it really a part of your being? Now in verse 12, the apostle says that this relationship we have Through Christ is not because of the flesh. We are debtors not to the flesh, but we are debtors to the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that has saved us and not our own efforts. 
Uh, Two Sundays ago, I talked about there being hostility of mind, that people in their natural condition, in their unconverted condition, are hostile to God. Their minds are hostile to God. When I was a kid growing up, I was a Baptist preacher's son, and I went to church every Sunday, and my mind was hostile to God. It wasn't my dad's fault. It wasn't my mom's fault. It was the fault of the fallen nature. But then one day, something happened, and my mind was changed. And I didn't, I didn't loathe church anymore. I didn't loathe Scripture anymore. I had a new attitude about it because I had received the mind of Christ. I received a new nature. I had been born again. And the new birth makes everything different. And it's the Spirit of God that saves us. It's the Spirit of God that opens our eyes to the truth. It's the Spirit of God that brings us into a relationship with Christ, not our own efforts. Now, sometimes people will say, well, I don't know about that because I think I made an effort. Well, you did make an effort, but the effort that you made was triggered, activated, moved forward by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, my dad would say it like this, the Holy Spirit changed your want to. You didn't want to, then the Holy Spirit came, and you wanted to. He changed your want to. He did something within you that caused you to pass from death into life and make you a new creature. So we are debtors not to the flesh, but to the Spirit. We need to remember that it's not the flesh that's going to save us. It's not the flesh that contributes to our salvation. It's not that natural condition that we are in. It's this supernatural condition that we are in, which was caused by the Holy Spirit. In verses 13 to 14, the apostle says that it's the flesh that kills. It's the flesh that damns us. It's the flesh that destroys us. But the flesh does not make you a child of God. It's that great reading in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where it says this. But as many as received him, Christ, to them, gave he the, to them, I've forgotten what it says. Let's turn and look at it. John chapter 1, verse 12. John chapter 1, verse 12. If you have a Bible like mine, it's on page 886. If you don't have one like mine, I have a trunk full of them in the parking lot. And for four payments of $29.95, they can all be yours. John chapter 1, verse number 12. Listen to the reading of God's word. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born, this is important, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God that has done this. It is the Spirit of God. It's something beyond ourselves that's brought us into this new birth. In the new birth, something glorious happens. We actually receive a new nature, and then we are actually translated, transported, or moved from one kingdom into another. Because in our natural condition, according to John chapter 8, You're a son of Satan, a daughter of Satan. You're part of the kingdom of darkness. But when you are born again, you are moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Take your copy of God's word. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. Colossians 1, verse 11. Paul writing to the Colossians, he says, May you be strengthened... With all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So it's God who has done this work to bring us into this this airship, into this, this special status. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God moves us from one kingdom into another kingdom by birth. Now, my, Valerie's back there with the, with, the, with the kids this morning. And the best illustration of this that I know of is that when I married Valerie, her mom and, I went to her mom and dad's house before we got married. You know, you have to, you have to meet the parents, right? And I went to their, their house, and I asked Valerie's dad, I said, can I, ma- can I marry Valerie? And he said, yeah, you can marry her. And he said, <laughs> have her in good riddance. <laughs> so we get married, and right before we got married, Ron and Carolyn had a little conference with me to onboard me into the family, right? To get me squared away. And here's what Ron told me. He said, you're my son. But don't ever call me dad. (laughs) He said, you can call me Ron. And he said, whatever I got, you got. He said, you want to borrow any of my tools? They're yours. You want to borrow my car? It's yours. You want to borrow my guns, anything, everything, it's yours. You are my son. Whatever Valerie has access to, I got access to. Brought me right into the family. And so I moved from being just Terry Basham in the Basham family, I moved into a bigger family. Because when I married Valerie, I got Ron and Carolyn, it's her mom and dad. Then I got Kevin and Melanie, her brother and sister. And I got... There, I got Walter and Kathy, the in-laws. Then I got, over time, the nephews and nieces. I got Amber, Ashley, Levi, Nathan, David, Stephen. (laughs) I love them so much. (laughs) And Andrew. My family grew. And then beyond that, I got Ron's sister, Kathleen. (laughs) Careful. In my closet, I have a, a blue wool hockey sweater that Kathleen gave me when we, when we got married over almost 25 years ago. Brothers, it still fits me. Can you believe it? <laughs> Somebody said no. Who was that? <laughs> I got them. And then that's, Ron just had that one sister, but he had a mom still alive. Her name was Violet. I got Violet. And then on Carolyn's side, she had six brothers and sisters. I got all the Leonard family. And just, I entered a new new kingdom, per se, a new relationship with all these new benefits, with all these new friends and loved ones. And when you move into God's family, you go from being in the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And now you are a son of God. A child of God. You are the sibling of Christ. And whatever Christ gets, you're going to get. You've moved into this kingdom. And in this kingdom, no citizen of this kingdom into which you enter ever dies. In the old kingdom, kingdom of darkness, people die all the time. But in the kingdom of light, in the kingdom of Christ, nobody ever dies. Because when you are born again... God gives to you everlasting, eternal, unending life. And that's your life forever in the kingdom of light. And that was all made possible not by the works of the flesh or by your own efforts or by special birth 
or because your dad's a preacher or your mom's a preacher or anything else. You get it because of the work of the Holy Spirit. You've been born into this by God's Spirit. Now, in verses 15 through 17, the apostle talks more about religion a little bit. He says in verse 15, listen to the reading from Romans Romans 8. You did not receive, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons whereby we cry, Abba, Father. There is a new intimacy here that we don't have, we don't have to live in fear of. The spirit of of the slavery of righteousness, because we're slaves of righteousness according to Romans 6, is not rooted in fear of failing to perform well. Our status with God does not rest upon our performance. This love that God gives to us is adopting love, and and that adopting love is not dependent on our performance at all, or even of our acceptance of it. It's something that God does directly and supernaturally. And this new intimacy that we have with God through Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit, means we can call the creating Lord of glory, Abba, Father. Now, this is, this, is, this is well said. Probably everybody knows that Abba is a familiar term, like dad, right? And I never really appreciated the significance of that until I was watching TV one time. You guys ever watch TV? You know, watch TV. So I was watching TV one night. I was watching this show called NCIS. You guys ever watch NCIS? And I can't remember. Mark Harmon is the main guy in it, and all these various little people in it. And there was, a, there was a girl who was part of his squad, a, a little, a little, a little a Jewish girl, whose name started with a Z, I think. Ziba. Thank you very much. Now we know who the sinners are. <laughs> so Ziba was a Jewish girl, and in one episode, she's on the phone talking to her dad. And she's rattling away at him in Hebrew, you know, ba 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 ba. And then she says, Abba, Abba, Abba. And I thought, Whoa! That's in the Bible. Abba, Father. And here is a girl talking to her dad. Now, I got three daughters. And when they talk to me on the phone, they call me dad in a special kind of way. It's not like dad like the boys do it. But it's, you know, sometimes uh, I'll get a call from the girls and they're, they're, ha- they're, in, a, they're in a difficulty. And the way they say dad, it, it's a different kind of way. You, those of you who have... have Children or daughters, you may, you may know what I'm talking about. This is the word that she was using to describe her relationship with, with her father. It was a, it's, a, it's a common word. It's an, an intimate term, Abba. So my friends, this relationship we have with God through Christ is formal. It's important. It's an heirship, but it's also intimate because we can call him Father, Abba, in the most intimate way. Now, down south, everybody says, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy this and Daddy that. John Wayne told his son in Big Jake, he said, if you ever call me Daddy again, I'll finish this fight. Because <laughs> he didn't like to be called Daddy. But Daddy is an intimate term. This is what we can call God, Dad, Father. And when you use that kind of term, it's not, it's not, it's not based on performance. It's based on relationship. This is what Christ is saying. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through the Apostle Paul. We have not received a a relationship with God that's based on fear. The old religion of works, the old religion of law, that was based in fear. But this one is not based in fear. 
This is based in love, in adopting love. And then in verse number 16, the apostle says that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God because it seems too good to be true. How can I really know that I am a child of God? Now, I've been a, I've been a, a parent you know, for 23 or 24 years, and all, and all of my kids along the way have made some kind of decision for Christ. They, 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 they grow up in church, and they hear the gospel, they hear the Bible stories, and so they're very conversant with Christianity. And at various times, they've made their own little professions of faith and said, you know, I'm trusting Christ as my Savior. And almost all of them, without exception, they've made an initial profession of faith, and then later on, at some point, they come back and they want to know if, it, if, if they're really saved. Tell me that I'm saved. Tell me that I'm settled. Tell me I'm going to go to heaven. As a pastor, this has happened to me lots of times where people will come to me and say, you know, I just want to know for sure I'm going to heaven. Tell me for sure I'm going to go to heaven. And I tell them what the Bible says. Put your faith in Christ. And they say, yeah, okay, I've done that, but it, did it work? Did it really take? Am I really? They want assurance of salvation. And that, that's a different thing. I can't pronounce people saved. You can't, if you come to my office, I can't give you a little quiz sheet and say, check off the boxes on a scale of one to five, you know, and if your total is 20 or more, then you're saved. That's not how it works. That's something you have to decide. That's something you have to decide. Something you have to get for yourself from the Holy Spirit. Assurance. And sometimes it's a hard-fought battle to get it. My grandmother, she was raised in a, in a works-oriented religion. She was, she, she grew up, uh, my grandmother grew up holiness Pentecostal, and they're, they're, they didn't believe in security of the believer. They were really, it's all works, all works, you know. Put your faith in Jesus, then work your tail off, and hopefully you'll make it in the last day. That's kind of the, they were their theology. And so my grandma starts going to a church that preaches the, the right view, the scriptural view of security of the believer, and she said it took her two years, two years of reading the Bible, of going to church and praying, before one day, kind of out of the blue, she received assurance of her salvation. She came to know that Christ had saved her. She, 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 she labored to enter into rest, and she was finally able to rest in Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit is who tells us we are children of God. Just because a pastor somewhere has looked at you and said, you are a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. The Holy Spirit is the one who does this work. So the question is, how does the Holy Spirit do this? I'm just going to walk through these things. The Holy Spirit does it by leading us to believe the gospel. The Holy Spirit does it by leading us to believe the gospel. If you were to turn to John chapter 3, you'll read in that chapter where it says that men hate darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. And no man comes into the light, lest his evil deeds be reproved. So that's how people are. People stay away from church, they stay away from the gospel, because the gospel shows their, their faults, shows their true condition, and so they avoid it. A lot of people don't want to go to church, because they know when they go to church, what's going to happen? What's the old saying? If I walk in that church, what will happen? The roof will fall in. And they don't want to go to a church because they know they've been living like a heathen all week. And they know eventually in the, in the sermon the preacher's going to get on sin. And they want, to, they want to avoid it. And so people don't like that kind of thing. 
They, they stay away from the light because they feel bad about it. Now, something, now something, something changes, just say, something changes their mind and causes them to come into the light. So there's, some, there's some big transaction that has to take place, and that's in the next verse. But something causes them to step into the light that their deeds may be revealed that they're wrought in Christ. Something significant takes place. And that's the Holy Spirit. He brings them into the light. He changes their perception of themselves and of God. Now this internal comfort, this leading of the Holy Spirit, brings them to faith in Christ and begins to give us this internal comfort that we're saved. It's something that emanates from within us. A lot of times people will want to know if they're saved or not. You show them the Bible verses, you know. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon them, Lord, shall be saved. And you show people those verses, and, but it's just on the outside. They don't really understand. They don't really see it. It's not coming from their heart. And so this assurance of faith is something that comes from the inside. It's the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit. It's God's spirit talking to our spirit, saying that we are a part of this. And I take this to mean two things. In Paul's writings here, I take it to mean two things. First of all, is the Holy Spirit causes us to both know and feel that we are saved. Because we believe in an experiential salvation. We are coming to know things. We're coming to understand things. And we're coming to feel things. It's not all just academic head knowledge where we're making assent to truths or recognizing that's true. There's something internal that takes place. And? You may not always feel like you are saved. You may not feel at first like you are saved. You don't feel like you're saved all the time. I know that's for sure. But if you're born again, there are times when you will have this internal assurance. Sometimes it's, it's a feeling. It's an internal conviction that you've passed from death into life. Now, not all Christian denominations believe in assurance or teach assurance. And usually this comes from the Arminian wing of Christendom. But they rob themselves of fabulous peace because they can just rest in the work of Christ. It's in John chapter 10 where Jesus says that my sheep are in my Father's hand and no one can pluck them from my Father's hand. I belong to Him. My security, my salvation is based in Christ, not in myself. In Psalms 144, verse number 10, says a similar thing. It is God that gives salvation. Now, Sometimes people think that saying that you are sure you're saved, that that's an arrogant thing, that that's a bold declaration. I know I'm going to heaven for sure. But it's not arrogant to say that you know you're saved because you're not, when you say you know you're saved, you're not assenting to your own efforts, your own merits. You're not saying, I'm really special here. You're saying that I fully trust that Christ can do what he has promised to do. Jesus said, he that believeth on me shall never die. It's John 11. If you believe in him, you'll never die. Your soul will live forever with God. And then the resurrection, you'll have this new body too. Now in verse 17, the apostle goes on. And he says here, he gives, he gives kind of a condition to it in verse 17. If children, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... Then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided, some translations have the word if here, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here is the condition. If children, then we are heirs. If we suffer with him. The proof of the new birth is internal. And there's an internal attachment to Christ that keeps us going with Christ even when life is really hard. Difficulty. The proof of the new birth is in an enduring attachment to Christ. And this is an attachment. This is a devotion to Christ that lasts through the sufferings of life here. If we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him, this enduring attachment to Christ is the big mark of the new birth. Because suffering does some things. There's three things that suffering does. First of all, suffering nearly always precedes glory. With Christ as our example, before Christ ascended to the throne in glory, before Christ received the name that's above every name, Philippians in chapter 2, he suffered on the cross. He died there and suffered under the wrath of God before he won the prize. Now, if you're an athlete, before an athlete receives the winner's medal, they have to suffer, don't they? Well, they have to suffer. They have to suffer in practice. They have to suffer lots of, lots of things they have to go through before they can get the medal. If you're a baseball fan, you've got to go through the whole season, 162 games. Then you've got to play through your, your, your division championships. Then you've got to play for the pennant. Then you've got to play with the World Series. Then you have to win four out, of three, four out of seven games in the World Series. You have to go through a lot before you can win the contest. Suffering nearly always precedes glory. And before we receive the glorious reality of our salvation, we have to go through the sufferings that salvation causes. Secondly, suffering is revelatory. Hard times by nature reveal the truth about things. And most of the things that we use every day have been tested by hard times. Suffering reveals something about us. You know, when you're, it's funny. When you read the Bible when you're 20 before you have kids or really a wife, you, know, you, you read the Bible one way. And then when you have kids and you have responsibilities and problems, you read the Bible much differently. When, you, when you've never really had suffering, you read the Psalms of Lament, and you're like, ah, oh, that guy was having a hard time. Then when you're going through hard times, you read the Psalms of Lament, and you're like, this guy is speaking my language. I know exactly what he's feeling here. These things are changing. Suffering reveals things about us. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, the third thing, that suffering reveals those who are born again. Because in Mark chapter 4, he gives this great, this great solemn warning that those who do not endure persecution and hard times, they fall away from him because they were never born again at all. Suffering reveals things. It's revelatory. The apostle is consistent with this. He says, provided... We suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This is, the, this is the condition. You are an heir with Christ. If you've been born again and this new birth is more than just, more than just changes your status, the new birth changes you. It makes you into a different person. So in conclusion, I'll give you these things and we'll be done. First, our relationship with God does not come from our flesh which means that we are not Christians by natural birth. We are Christians 
through the supernatural birth, through being born again. We are not Christians because we've done some special deeds. We're not Christians because we go to church. We're Christians because we've been born again and our faith and trust is in Jesus Christ. A person becomes a Christian. This is how you, you, you know you're on the right track when you put your personal faith in Christ as your Savior. Charles Spurgeon, dealing with these issues in his day, a lady said, how do I know that I'm one of God's elect? He said, it's not our business to know that. If you've put your faith in Christ and you trust in Christ as the source of all your righteousness, that's where your faith is at, then you're one of God's elect. You've come to know this great truth. The Christ is the source of it. Remember the thieves on the cross, those two men that were crucified with Jesus Christ. One guy, all he does is say, hey, I know you're the guy. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And that guy, would have pat, that guy would have failed a kindergarten Bible test. He would have flunked out of children's church. All he knew was Jesus was the one who could save him, and he put his faith there. Now, if he'd stayed around, if he could have lived longer, he probably would have learned more. But you begin there, very small, simple faith in Christ. And I want to ask you a question. Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you done that? And if you have not put your faith in Christ, if you've never intentionally put yourself in Christ's hands, calling upon Him as your Savior, you have to do it. No one can do it for you. Although people who love you would very gladly do it if we could, you have to do it for yourself. And if you have put your faith in Christ, you will eventually and most assuredly suffer as a Christian. Because being a Christian means you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer somewhere, somehow. Maybe you'll suffer, you go down to your, you go home. You tell your mom or dad, I put my faith in Christ. And you could have your dad or mom for the first time in your life take a religious position. And tell you that that's all fooey. That's all, it's all hooey. It's, that, that's ridiculous. There's a, a friend of mine, his name was Paul Lawal. When he, he was 11 years old and he went, he was out in the market. He was, he was from Nigeria. He was out in the market. And he heard a missionary on a corner preaching. Preaching the gospel. And he stopped. And I stopped and I stood and I listened. And I heard the preacher say, Talked about Jesus was the Son of God. He died for sinners. He rose for sinners. And if I put my faith in Christ, that I could be, become a Christian. I would be saved, have all my sins forgiven. He said, at 11 years old, I already knew I had lots of sins. He said, I went home and told my dad that I believed the missionary's message. I put my faith in Christ and said, my father's going to be out in the front yard and whipped me with a whip front and back and told me he never wanted to see me again. 11 years old, went down the street, back to the missionary, Found the missionary. The missionary took him in and raised him. Became an adult. Moved to Massachusetts. Got a master's degree in psychology. Then went back to Nigeria as a missionary later. You never know. You're going to put your faith in Christ. You're going to suffer. One of, my, one of my dad's converts when he was a young pastor in Virginia. This young lady came to church on a Wednesday night. My dad preached the gospel. Was preaching the gospel. And she came forward and put her faith in Christ. Went home and told her husband. Hey, I've become a Christian, so no more, no more carousing with you, no more partying, no more beer parties. I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to go to church on Sunday, and I can't run around like you like I used to. 
Well, that made him very mad. Very mad. He made her suffer. He made my dad suffer too because he said he told he told that girl and everybody in town, small town like Sheboygan, he said, I'm gonna kill that preacher. So there's suffering on both sides. Following Christ is going to cause you some suffering somewhere, somehow. If you become a Christian, or as you're a Christian, sometimes people are going to separate from you because you're just a Christian. You may not even be giving them any sermons and trying to straighten them out. You may just say, hey, I'm a Christian. They say, oh, you know what? I'm going to go to a different lunch. I'm going to readjust my schedule so we don't meet anymore. I'm not, you're not going to be in my email chain anymore. There is suffering that comes from being a Christian. You're, you will suffer as a Christian somewhere, somehow. But any suffering that we face in this life will be replaced by eternal and tangible glorification. If we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And my friends, look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is a future glory that will make all the suffering of this life seem so, so insignificant and so small. And we owe this not to our own efforts, but to God, to His great merciful grace, to the Holy Spirit. We don't owe this to ourselves, but to God, who in Christ reconciled sinners to Himself, and the Holy Spirit personally drawing us to faith in Christ. We are debtors, not to the flesh. We are debtors to the Holy Spirit because He has made us heirs with Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we take these few words we've offered and I pray that these would yield lasting benefits, Lord. I pray that we would all be able to worship You more fully and more completely as we know that we are saved, not because of ourselves, but by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.